My subject this morning is what you already have. This morning I'm going to talk about celebrating what we already have in our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that most of us here know the truth about our salvation. Most Christians know that God has solved the problem with sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we might be freed from guilt and shame of sin. But there is a majority of Christians who do not understand that God has solved the problem with the source as well. Your old man, your old self, has been set free, set free through Jesus Christ. But here is where the confusion comes. Some people, when they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they say to themselves, they've heard it over and over again, so they say to themselves, you know, I, I accepted Christ, I, I'm new, but I, I don't feel new. Um, because the same things are going through their head. And, and, and they say, but I'm new, but I, I don't think that I'm new because of some of these things that are going through their, their mind. They say, I'm new, but I, I don't act new all the time. And so it becomes confusing. Am I new or am I not? And so they look at their life and they think, well, I don't know. I mean, how can you do some of the things that I do, some of the things that I think, and still be saved? In Romans 6.12, the Bible says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. So now, I'm, I'm new, and yet I don't feel new. I, I'm new. And yet I don't act new. And so now the Bible's telling me, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So now it's up to me again. Now, I, I guess that I can choose one way or the other. I can choose to walk in the spirit or I can choose to walk in the flesh. And so now I'm really confused. Christ did it all, but yet now I've got to sort everything out. And so a lot of people, they come to the place where religion is just too confusing and they just push it aside. We believe that our calling as a new creation in Christ is to say no to sin and yes to who we truly are and that is we are a child of God. So here again, okay, now, I guess I have to choose. So I have to, so I have to choose every moment of the day. Do I have to choose? What is it that I have to choose all the time? It's confusing. And so 2 Corinthians 5:17 says this: Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So the Bible says I am a new creation, and but I don't feel new all the time. I'm a new creation. I don't act like I'm new all the time. 
And yet the Bible tells me that old things have passed away. Well, if old things are passed away, why is it that I struggle internally with I'm, I'm new and yet I'm, I don't feel new. I'm, I'm new and I don't act new. And, and I go through all of this turmoil. Well, I believe that every born-again Christian has a true desire to do God's will. I have never met a born-again Christian who didn't feel that way. They want to do God's will. Now, I've heard through the years how confusing it can become when we try to understand why we don't walk in the Spirit all the time, and, and it seems like our life is so up and down all around sometimes. And we just can't put it together. And, and so we wonder whether we're actually born again. Because we have some idea what happens when an individual is born again, but we're not sure what it is. And so the Bible reassures us, and you've heard me say this many times, that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you received a new heart. God did a surgery on you. He opened you up. He took out that stony heart, gave you a new heart. So you're solid at the core. Now, I've said that over and over and over again. And I will remind you of that over and over and over again. When we are born again, we did not get a new soul. We did not get a new personality. Our soul has a choice. We can walk in the spirit or we can walk in the flesh. It comes down to whether we believe what we believe or not. Whether we are born again, whether we are solid, whether we have union with Christ, whether we're fused with Christ, it's whether we actually believe that. A few years ago, when I was up in Northern Virginia, I got a call from someone who I had visited, recently visited, in the Fairfax jail. And so... He was allowed a phone call because he was just held there for his court until his court came up. And so uh, he called me and he said, uh, uh, Pastor Gary, is there any way possible you could get down to the Fairfax jail? And I says, well, why? What's the urgency? He says, well, I just got a new roommate in my cell and he just got life in prison without parole and he's a fairly young man and um, he says I just think you need to get down here and, and and see him and pray with him he said he's a basket case so a few hours later I went to the Fairfax jail and uh, they called him out and we went into this room and um, he started crying he was an executive for a company up in uh, Northern Virginia, and he just started bawling. And he said to me, all my Christian life, nothing has ever worked. Nothing. He says, God has really been hard on me. He said, I went to church every week. I went to... Uh, Bible college to become a minister. I gave money to more than 
one ministry, but nothing, nothing has ever worked, and now I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. And I said, I told him, I said, well, I said, I can only tell you one thing, that life doesn't work when it's your work, when you're trying to work it. It doesn't work. Um, I had the opportunity to be with him there for over an hour and went through the gospel with him and everything, and he had it all confused in his mind. He thought that it's what you did that matter most to God. It's how you read your Bible, how you had your quiet time, how you did this, how you did that. He was all confused about it. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, there's nothing I can do for you because you're going away for the rest of your life. He said, but there's something God will do for you. God will take all that Bible college that you went to and all that knowledge that you have, and you'll be able to help those who did not have it. And just think, you'll be able to do that for the rest of your life. Well, several months passed. I was visiting somebody in the mental ward of the Dominion Hospital. And a nurse came up to me and she said, Pastor Gary, she said, um, there's a lady that just came in. Would you go to her room and pray for her? I said, sure, be glad to. So I went into the room and this woman was just recently admitted. She was admitted probably a couple hours before I got there. And she was down on the uh, 13th uh, Street Bridge there in Washington, D.C., and she was about to jump off and end her life. And so she was hanging on, and she was getting the courage to jump, and somebody stopped their car, jumped out, and grabbed her before she jumped. And now she's in Dominion Mental Hospital. And so as I was visiting with her, to my amazement and shock, I found out that she was the wife of the one that I had visited in jail and who got life in prison. About a year passed, and I got a letter from this this man and that had, was spending his life in prison. And he said, I would have never believed it. He says, but God has given me the opportunity to minister these, to these prisoners. And he said, um, I'm so sorry for how I messed up my life and my children's life and my wife's life. He says, but I'm thankful that God can still use me. So this morning, I want to focus on what we already have in Christ. I want to focus on it because that should be our incentive to give God permission to live his life through us and walk in the spirit. Now, we want to avoid the error of having head knowledge 
that never touches the heart. A lot of people know the Bible. I've met people who could quote the whole New Testament word for word. They knew the Bible. But at the same time, it didn't do them much good. They knew the Bible, but they didn't believe the Bible. And there's a lot of us that know what the Bible says, but the question is whether we actually believe it or not. Do we really believe what the Bible tells us? So we've got to be careful. Some people have heart knowledge. They have a heart for God, but it never touches the head. And so there's got to be a balance here. We want to make sure that we have a knowledge of God that unites both head and heart. And so I'm going to go to 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter is given his authority here. He's telling these people, look, I walked with Jesus. I heard I listened, I learned. The bondservant apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of some kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing this letter to those who have the same kind of faith that he does, that he preaches. And yet there are some there that are so-called believers, they said that they accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, but they had a lot of questions. And these people, some scholars feel anyway, that they were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were a group of people who believed in, in Jesus Christ, but they did not believe that he was a physical being. He was spirit only. He wasn't physical. They believe that they never sinned, and we all know that the first requirement of receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior is to admit that you're a sinner. And so they did not admit that. They did not believe that they had ever sinned. And so Peter is warning against these false teachers. Now, Peter warns against the teaching that is against Christ's righteousness as a gift. You see, when you and I accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, whether we understood it or not, it has nothing to do with it. We're maturing in Christ. A lot of us, we didn't find out a lot of things until we got a lot older. So all of us are maturing in Christ. So you may have been 10 years old when you received Christ as your personal Savior, and all these years you are maturing in him. And so there was, a, a, there was a lot of Christians today. They believe that their righteousness comes from what they are doing, How, whether they're walking in the Spirit um, or whether they're walking in the flesh. And so they gauge their righteousness by what they are doing. And the Bible makes it very clear that salvation is a gift, eternal life is a gift, and your righteousness is a gift. It is a gift from God. So Peter is warning them, don't be taken in by false teachers who try to teach you that your righteousness, righteousness depends on what you're doing. 
Beware of that. Beware of, of, of even entertaining the thought that your righteousness has to do with what goes through your mind, your thoughts that go through your mind. Beware of that, he says. And then he says this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. What multiplies? The Bible says grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace will do what? It will give you peace. There are a whole lot of Christians out here who do not have peace. They're torn apart inside. They, they just can't figure it out, this whole Bible business. And, of course, we're in the Bible belt. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of questions about our doing and, and, and what God has done and what we should be doing. And it, it's sort of like most people believe that if they're the initiator, God is the responder. And you've heard me before, that's not true at all. God is always the initiator. We are the responder. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon all flesh. And so the Holy Spirit came to us. He ministered to us, and then we responded. Always, God is the initiator. We are the responder. But we treat God as if we're the initiator and he's the responder. I remember when I went to a church many years ago out west. And uh, they were at this all-night pray vigil. And uh, I, I was brand new. I was a brand new pastor there. And uh, I said, well, that's fine. I said, but then later on, I said, what do you hope to accomplish by this? Do you believe that if you, what, that if you pray long enough, hard enough, then God is going to do something? So you're the initiator. You're telling God, this is what I'm willing to do. Now I want to see you do it. I want to see you respond. That's not the way God works. God is always the initiator. We are the responders. Now, grace upon grace, what happens there? You will become more gracious. The more you understand grace, you become more gracious, you become less judgmental. It's grace upon grace upon grace that gives us peace. But we end up looking for peace. And like the song says, in all the wrong places sometimes, we just feel that if we do our part, then God is going to do his part. And so if we study the Bible long enough, hard enough, then God is going to look favorably on us, and he's going to react towards us. He's going to say, oh, that person is really serious, so I'm going to bless him. That is not the way God works. But that's, that's the view we have of God. We feel that if we do our part, he does his. And this is what I want to clarify this morning. Now, some believe that by fasting and, and, and all this other things, that if they do this, then God is going to respond. Some search for some sort of an experience. 
they want to somehow, they want to experience this thing called religion, relationship, and so they go searching for a feeling, or they, they're looking for the power of God that they can see with their own eyes, then they can really believe. And believe me, that is not true. That is not true. Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see, who do not feel, who do not go through those experiences. Blessed is he that accepts him by faith. So, let me ask you a question. Our search should be over. But what would bring you more peace? You searching for God? Asking, begging God? Pleading with God? That he would reveal anything in your mind that might be holding back his blessing? Um, or, what if you knew that you had every blessing? You knew it. And you didn't have to beg or plead or, or beg God to, to fix you. I want you to notice something here in verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, the Bible says, and it makes it very plain, that you have everything you need right now pertaining to life and godliness. Your search is over. You don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to see it. The Bible says it. And if the Bible says it, it's true. So now the Bible says that you have everything. Man-made religion says you need more. You must do more. You must be all you can be. That's what man-made religion says. And so they challenge you, they have programs for every little thing to get you to that place. You, can, you must be all you can be. And God says, right now, this very moment, you're all there is. That's, you're, you're everything that I want you to be. And our first reaction is say, oh, well, Lord, you know better than that. You know how I think, you know what I go through. And yet God is saying, you're everything that I ever wanted you to be right now, right now. We're asked to believe. We're asked to believe the Bible. We're asked to believe everything in the Bible. And yet we don't. Now, so what, I mean, what does it all mean? Not only has Christ dealt with the sin issue, but he has also equipped us with everything that we need. We do not, our, our search is over. We don't have to look for anything. We have everything. The Bible says that you have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have it all right now. 
I mean, there, there's nothing more exciting just to know that God has equipped us for what he's asking us to do. He's equipped us. God has given everything, past tense, everything. Now, if he didn't equip us, then why would he ask us to, to do all these things? Why would he ask us to be holy and blameless? Why would he ask us to, to set our minds on things above? Why would he say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body? Why would he say all those things if he had not equipped us to do it? Christ living in you is our hope of glory. We have the power of the Holy Spirit deep in our core. We have the love of God deep in our core. We have it all. Everything for life and godliness we already have. So I think it's time that we start celebrating God equipping us. We ought to be thankful and praise him every day of our life that he has equipped us to live out this Christian life. Somebody might say, well, what about when I sin? That's an easy fix. An easy fix. 2 Corinthians 5.19 I will not hold your sins against you. I'm not going to hold your sins against you. Sometimes it's hard for people to understand why God would say something like that. When he died for the sins of the world, and so we sin, and before we can utter anything, before we can even say anything to God that we're sorry or anything else, he's already forgotten it. And so he gives us a clean bill of sale. We, are, we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So now we can live in peace. Not in guilt, not in shame. We can live in peace. We are everything that God wants us to be. And if there's any changes, God says, I will recreate you into my image. You can try to change. You can try as hard as you want to, but believe me, the harder you try, the less it's going to work. God says that I've given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. And if you believe it, you're going to see something that happens to you that you never dreamed was possible. Now, there's a lot of people who look at themselves as I, I, I know I'm saved, but I, I know I'm a, a dirty, rotten sinner. Now, just think about that. I've heard people preach and, and, and teach that the heart is wicked above all things. Then they quote the Old Testament. The wicked is heart. The, the, the heart is wicked. Here, God gave you a pure heart. And now they're saying... Your heart is wicked. That makes absolutely no sense. God makes more sense. I've given you a pure heart. I've never met a Christian who wanted to sin. Never. Never a born-again Christian who wanted to sin. I've, heard, I've met thousands who fell into sin, 
I mean, there's thousands of, of those, but they didn't really want to. When we sin, what is it? We start thinking, oh man, how did I, what's wrong with me anyway? How did I fall into that trap? How did I do that? What was I thinking? Um, and, and, and God says to us, no problem. 2 Corinthians 5.19, I will not hold your sins against you. I've equipped you to walk in the Spirit. If you believe that I have equipped you, as a man thinketh in his heart, the Bible says, so is he. Now some, <clears throat> they do not realize that you can be a sincere Christian who loves the Lord and yet have no peace. You can be a sincere Christian who loves the Lord and is full of guilt and shame. It's simply because they do not understand. It's nothing, it's, it's nothing to do with them. It's about their understanding, their view of God, their picture of who God really is. Is he this loving God that we talk about? Yes. Is he this forgiving God that we talk about? Yes. 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross for the sins of the world. It starts with knowing that we are loved. It starts with us knowing that when God says that we are complete in him, we are. Do we feel complete? No. Do we act complete? No. Are we complete? Yes. Why? Because we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And he is living in us, and we are only maturing. It'll be a lifetime of maturing, but we are maturing. The problem that many of us have is that we do not believe what Jesus said. Jesus taught us that our effort would focus not on sinning less, but on loving others. That's what he says our focus should be. We can strive to sin less, but not, but not possibly love more. But if we love more, we cannot help but sin less. Let me say it again. If we love more, Jesus says the bottom line is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line of the commandments. That's, that's everything. And here he says that if we love more, we cannot help but sin less. Peace comes from a true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you believe in the excellence? Here it says his own glory and excellence. Do you believe in the excellence of, of Jesus Christ? Uh, now, we don't use the word excellence so much. We use the word awesome today. Do we really believe that God is awesome? Do we really believe it? He is an awesome God. Here we were born sinners. We sin before we even understand what sin is all about. And then, because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, 
we are born again. We were born sinners. Now we're born again. We have a whole new slate. And we are forgiven. And we are blessed with every blessing that he can possibly give us. And he has equipped us to live out this Christian life. That is an awesome God. That is an awesome God that does not hold our sins against us. That is an awesome God who has equipped us to live out this Christian life. The Bible says here in verse 4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. His precious, magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Sometimes it's so easy just to read a scripture and not really comprehend what it's saying. The Bible says here, he is magnificent. His promises are magnificent. And just the idea that even if you sin, he does not hold our sins against, that is magnificent. That is awesome. We have a God that is an awesome God. And then we know that we know that he's forgiven us. And he declared, he, he actually declared that he will remember your sins no more. He will remember them no more. What an awesome God we have. There are over 3,000 promises in the Bible. It's time that we started embracing some of these promises and believe them. It's one thing to embrace them. It's another thing to believe them. But it's time that we begin to believe them. Christians today now have a, they can fulfill the promises that, that Peter is talking about, saying that you have the privilege of enjoying intimacy with God. Now, it says that you may partake, you may be a partaker of his divine nature. I well am aware of the controversy in this text. There are some theologians that wrestle with this test, this text, and they, say they wonder what Peter means by being a partaker of his divine nature. What does that really mean? I'm a partaker of his divine nature. Well, Peter is saying here is that we can share, we can share in some essential qualities that that have the characteristic of God himself. We can share those. Christ in us, living through us, is the answer to all of our problems. The only issue here is you and I have to give God permission. We have to simply say to God, you know, God, I don't understand it all. I really don't. I don't get everything. But I want to give you permission to live your life through me. I don't know how it works, but I'm giving you my permission to live your life through me. And you'll begin to see a tremendous difference. You'll begin to see a growth within your spirit that you've never experienced before. You're going to be more gracious. You're going to be more loving. You're going to be less judgmental. You're going to be exactly what God wants you to be. Exactly. 
There's a mystical ring to this, I know, being partakers of God's divine nature. I believe it has a lot to do with the ability, and I call it a new ability in the New Testament, to resist sin through our union with Christ. And you've heard me say before, and I'll say it again, is that when we are tempted with sin and when we do sin, but when we are tempted to sin, we look at that and we say, you know, I'm dead to that. I'm alive to God. I'm dead to that. I'm alive to God. I'm dead to that. I'm alive to God. And you'll, you'll have an awareness that you can walk away from temptation. It's, gonna, it's, it's not going to be overnight. That's not what it is. That's not what it's all about. God is recreating you into his image. So I believe that it's that ability, the realization that you have union, your fusion with God, that you become a partaker of his divine nature. And that causes you to walk away from sin, to walk in the spirit. And then the Bible says here in 5, now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply mortal excellence and in your mortal excellence, knowledge. The more knowledge that we have about Jesus Christ, the more we understand what he's actually done to us and through us, we become a different person, a different person. In fact, Peter's he goes so far as to say that you're going to see the fruits of the Spirit and he, from verse 5 to 8, he starts listing some things, some Christian virtues like self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness. He starts out with faith and he ends with love. And that's where it should be. Verse 8 says here, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never have to be wondering, worrying, should I, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? You don't have to worry about that. Should I be witnessing? Should I be telling others about Christ? You don't have to worry about that. That's not your concern. Your concern is just let Christ live in you and through you. That's all. And let God do whatever he's going to do. It says here, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, those of you that have been here for this past year that I've been here, I don't know how many times you've heard me say, and maybe you're getting tired of it, but I don't know how many times you've heard me say that about this sin issue. The sin issue was settled 2,000 years ago. Christ died for the sins 2,000 years past because in the sacrificial system, the sins were only covered. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took them away. In the New Testament, when Christ died on the cross, we're 2,000 plus years, all of our sins were in the future, and God took all of our sins away. So you've heard me say over and over, the sin issue is no more. We don't have a sin issue. 
Nobody is going to be lost because of sin. It's only going to become because of unbelief, not sin. Sin is done. Sin is over. But what do most Christians fight year after year, day after day, is sin. So is it over or isn't it? Did Christ, did his blood, did it take care of all of our sins? Or just portions of them or part of them? No. It took care of all of them. All of them. Religion says that you must get right with God. Daily, weekly, yearly. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a pagan religion or a Jewish religion where they go to the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement or a Catholic religion where they go to weekly Mass or a Protestant religion where they march down the aisle week after week trying to get right with God, trying to get their sins uh, forgiven. I have visited hundreds of churches in West Virginia, and some of these churches are wonderful churches. Don't misunderstand me. They'll have an altar call every week, and the same people come down. A lot of the same people, I should say. Why? Well, it's, it's, it's no different. It's no different than what the pagans do. It's no different what the Jewish people do, what the Catholic Jews or the Protestants do. It's no difference. It's the same thing. They want to do something to get right and stay right with God. And the message from the New Testament is, you are right with God. You are right with him. If you've accepted him as your personal savior, you are rock solid in Christ. Rock solid. You are holy. You are blameless. You are everything that God says that you are. And we just have to embrace it and believe it. And you'll see a difference in your life when you embrace it and believe it. You don't have to work at anything. God is going to work in you and through you. It is a beautiful, wonderful picture of God. God is awesome. God is true. God is wonderful. And he has some magnificent promises for all of us. Our forgiveness is not dependent on our memory, our words, our confessing. No, it's not dependent upon that. Our forgiveness solely rests on what took place 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Jesus Christ shed his blood only once, only once. And we Christians are forgiven people. We live in a state of forgiveness. Wow, what an awesome thing that is. We live in a state of forgiveness. Notice verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. This is what Peter is saying. As long as I live, and he knew he had a vision. He knew he was going to die shortly before he, as he was writing this. Peter says, as long as I live, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you of who you are in Christ. I'm going to remind you that your sins are forgiven. 
I'm going to remind you of these things. I want those things to be indelibly impressed in your mind. I want you to never forget what God has done. So he says, I'm going to remind you. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. We need to be reminded a thousand times what God has done, what God is doing, and what he wants to do. We can never be reminded enough who we are in Christ, what God is doing. We come here every week. We come here, hopefully we come here to encourage each other. We come here to tell each other what an awesome God we serve. What a magnificent God he is. Do you feel, maybe you came here this morning and maybe you feel a little weak this morning. Maybe life is coming at you and all sorts of things are taking place. And, and maybe life is just really confusing. And you just feel, you just feel weak. Have you ever felt just weak? Spiritually, just weak? I mean, I have. Notice what, what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is Paul speaking. And he had said to me, Paul prayed three times that he would take this problem that he had away, that God would do that. And then God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, he says, power is perfected in weakness. Is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I'll tell you, even when we feel weak, we can be praising God when we think of this text. That his power is going to be demonstrated because of my weakness. But what does it do? Well, our weaknesses are merely daily reminders of our need to depend upon Christ. That's not bad, is it? A daily reminder that we need to depend upon Christ. Now, the Bible is full of people with real flaws whom God dearly loved. I mean, when you think of this Bible, a lot of it was written by murderers. I mean, Moses... Paul murdered Christians. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Moses, anger, murder. Abraham, he had a fear of men. He was willing to let the king take his wife. Samson was a womanizer. Sarah, she was full of unbelief, just like some of us are at times. David, fear, lust. Peter, pride and fear of man. And yet God so abundantly blessed these men and women. And that's what God is doing to us. Some of us have fears. Some of us maybe have anger issues. Some of us may have forgiveness issues. But whatever we have, we are dearly loved by God. What an awesome God we have. What an awesome God we serve. 
I close with this scripture in Romans 15, 14. The Bible says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. And I can tell you, I can go to any church. I don't care where the church is, what the church is. And I can say that same thing with all meaning, all, with every meaning that is in my body. When you give your life to Christ, whether you understand all this stuff is immaterial, God searched you and found you and spoke to you and you responded. And you are fused with God, you're united with him. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. In other words, you're able to encourage one another. So we here, we are here to encourage each other. We're here to remind each other that we have an awesome God. We're here to encourage each other that we are never forgotten. We are always forgiven and he will be with us all the way to the end. We do serve an awesome God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all the things that you are doing, what you have done and what you will do we're thankful that we have our life fused with you. And we just praise you and thank you for being such a wonderful God. I pray that you will continue to bless our fellowship here. That you will unite us in a very special way. That you'll give us the joy of knowing. Of joy of knowing you and your goodness and your fairness and your love. Bless us to this end is my prayer. For I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.